Father, we thank you for your life-giving, abundant word that, like the rains, accomplishes that for which you sent it, working in us both a recognition of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, and then calling us to faith in that same Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray your blessing upon us today as we continue in the study of all that he did on behalf of us, not even sparing his own life, but giving that life as payment in full for the sins of the world. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us and guide us and direct us and increase our knowledge and understanding of that word and especially also its application for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you remember that um, the disciples really have, um, you might say, let Jesus down um, in a couple of ways that we have seen already. First of all, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane on Monday, Thursday evening, as was his custom. Remember, we talked about that last week. And uh, he, during Holy Week especially, it seems, he was teaching in the temple during the day, then going to the Mount of Olives uh, overnight. And uh, that would be the way then that certainly Judas, uh, who betrayed him, would know to look for him there. Remember the disciples, when Jesus goes off to pray, he comes back and finds them asleep. That was letting him down, number one. Number two, remember, when he's going to be arrested, uh, Peter, as he so often does, takes matters into his own hands, picks up a sword, and uh, lops off the ear of one of the temple guards, one of the captains of the temple, a man named Malchus, and then Jesus heals that ear right there on the spot. Wouldn't you like to see their faces when he, when he healed that ear right there, then and there on the spot? And today we're going to begin with the third way that the disciples let Jesus down, and this now is focusing on Peter actually denying, and we'll see how thoroughly he denies even knowing Jesus. It's quite, uh, quite shocking and quite sad. Um, we're going to see at the end here that he goes out and weeps bitterly and must have been astonished himself at how quickly and how thoroughly he denies Jesus. Okay, So let's begin with verse 54 of Luke 22. And so for just a moment here, the spotlight is going to go away from Jesus and focus on Peter. Remember that Jesus predicted that this was going to happen. In fact, it was only about 30 verses earlier that you know, Peter makes this declaration that he's ready to go and be arrested and even die with the Lord if it's necessary. And Jesus lets him know before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And here we go. So starting, let's read the whole section through and then I'll, we'll come back and kind of take it apart. So starting with verse 54. Then they seized him, that would be Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he saw, sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, Still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, 
Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So, in the life and ministry of Peter, this undoubtedly is his low point. You can't get much lower than this. Let's go back and take a look, uh, starting at verse 54. And they, that would be again those who came out to arrest him, the temple guard, uh, the captains of the, of the temple guard, uh, seized him and Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Now, this high priest is the one who is, um, who is uh, the actual in-office in high priest. Uh, we know that this happened, but first, John tells us that the temple guard took him first to the former high priest, who is Annas. And Annas is retired now, but he still, I hate to make mafia connections here with, with the uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders, but you get the feeling that Annas is sort of like the godfather. He's still there in the background. And um, so the, the, they arrest him. They take him first to Annas. John has that account in his gospel. Luke does not. And there's an exchange, and really nothing much happens. Now then, they bring him to the high priest Caiaphas's house. Uh, those of you that have been along uh, on a trip to Israel with us know that it's on the south. You come up the south steps. And those steps that you come up are uh, some of the most sure uh, in all of Israel that Jesus walked there and uh, in his day because that's the way you would have come and gone to the high priest's house. And those steps, those blocks that are there, um, had to be cordoned off. Can you guess why they had to be cordoned off? People were stealing them. Yeah, people were taking them as souvenirs. So anyway, that's one of the most sure things uh, that, that Jesus actually walked there. That, I, it was one of the only times Ann and I have taken pictures of our feet uh, in our lives because we were standing right where, where we knew Jesus had stood. Anyway, that's, that, I don't, that's an aside. Uh, so they go to his house, and notice there, Peter was following at a distance. You know, following is disciple language, isn't it? Come follow me. And so Peter is following, but notice at a distance now. And there's one other thing. I left you a little cliffhanger last week at the very end of the class. Peter isn't the only disciple that kind of followed along. There's another disciple who actually followed a little bit closer and let Peter into the courtyard, we believe. Anybody want to guess who that disciple is? I think some of you know. Yeah, John, the disciple John. If you would keep your finger here if you've got a paper Bible uh, or just uh, scroll if you've got uh, electronic to John 18, and I'll show you where we get this, John 18. Now the rest of the disciples from what we get in Matthew and Mark just scattered. But in Luke here now zeroes in on Peter and what's happening with Peter, but John also was the one, uh, was there I should say. And remember, in John's Gospel, he often refers to himself in the third person. He doesn't say, I, John. 
He refers to himself many times as the disciple Jesus loved, right? And here we're going to see another reference he makes, we think to himself, in the third person. So I'm going to look at verse 15 of John 18. John 18, 15 and following. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So he's acknowledging Peter did. And notice, and so did another disciple. And we believe this another disciple, again, third person, is John referencing himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So you get the impression here, he's pretty close to Jesus. They're going into the courtyard. He goes into the courtyard when they're taking Jesus into the courtyard. The courtyard would be out in front of the entrance to the high priest's house, uh, uh, sort of a waiting station. It's like the, I guess it's like the waiting room in the, in the uh, doctor's office. But Peter, notice, stood outside the door, outside the gate to the door. So the other disciple, this other disciple here, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So John is the one who finagles with this servant girl to get Peter inside the courtyard. Otherwise, Peter's kind of staying a safe distance outside of the courtyard. And notice there, verse, we'll just go through verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now that's the same servant girl that we're going to see, uh, that we read about here in Luke. A couple things here. Notice that this disciple is known to the high priest. Now here's the theory on this. That Zebedee, remember James and John were, what? Fishermen. And Father Zebedee uh, had the fishing business, which they worked. We think that Zebedee might have been quite um, uh, affluent, I'll just say, uh, because, here's the reason, when James and John are called by Jesus, the account says that they left their father and the boat and the other workers. So there were other workers there. This seems like it was a fairly substantial fishing business and followed Jesus. So the theory is that Zebedee was a pretty affluent person and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders sure like to associate with the well-to-do. And that's why they think, we think, this is all theory, this I'm, I'm speculation here, but you'll, you'll read this, that this is how John, if he is referring to himself, was known to the high priest. And you get the feeling that John um, was kind of influential. He goes to the servant girl and gets her to open the gate and let Peter in to the courtyard. Okay? So anyway, that is the theory uh, as to how Peter gets into the courtyard. Uh, at the end of all this, Peter's probably going to wish he was still outside the courtyard, but he comes into the courtyard. Okay? And so let's go back to Luke now. Let's go back to Luke 20. Or, uh, I'll tell you, at the end of the section, we'll take questions or comments, okay? When we get down to the end of the section, I'll pause and see if you have any questions or comments. Now, so let's go back to verse 55. And when they, that's these workers, or uh, I'm sorry, soldiers, uh, temple guard, they start a fire. They're probably waiting outside now for what 
is going to transpire inside. They're not needed inside. They are simply the, the muscle, if you, if you will, uh, and they report to the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. They're outside. They get a fire going in the courtyard just to warm themselves, and it's in the light of that fire. You know, as Peter is sitting there, they can see his face, and they start questioning him. Aren't you one of them? So, verse uh, 56, here comes our servant girl now, one we just read about in John. Servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light. Again, the fire making his face visible to them. And looking closely at him, she's really sizing him up here, okay? Said, this man also was with him, meaning Jesus, okay? As Jesus is again inside, but notice what he says. He denied it. And that word in Greek is, again, the word for disowning yourself from someone, okay? He denied that he was, denied what had been said, and look at what he says. Woman, I do not know him. Boy, I do not even know him. And remember, it was not that many chapters ago in Luke, I think it's in Luke uh, 9, where Peter makes that confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God, and he gets commended by Jesus. And now he's at the other end of the spectrum. I do not know him. Okay? Not that, I'm, not that I'm not with them. I don't even know him at all. That's, that's about as low as it goes, isn't it? Now, a little bit later, so Luke lets us know that some time has passed here. This didn't happen boom, boom, boom. So some time passes a little bit later. Someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Who's the them? The disciples, right? The, the group that's traveling. You are one of them, meaning again his disciples. And he says, man, I am not. So now he has said he does not know Jesus. He has disassociated himself with the other disciples and by connection with Jesus again. But here he's separating himself from the other disciples. Then finally, um, another uh, about an, an interval of an hour passes, rough, roughly an hour. Time passes again, and still another person there around that fire in that night says, certainly this man was with him. And um, uh, insisted, and, and in, the, in the original language, it's an ongoing action. So he didn't just say it once. He was continually insisting that this guy Jesus was, or this guy Peter was with Jesus. For notice what he says there. He too is a Galilean. And Matthew lets us know that it was Peter's Galilean accent that gave him away should have given away because how would this guy know he's a Galilean he has an accent Peter does Galilee was up north just like you know you, uh, you hear some people from different regions of the country talk and uh, there's uh, and again I'm not I'm not being condescending here but people from the south you can kind of tell they're from the south right when they talk or uh, people from uh, 
Canada, it's always A at the end, you know, or something like that, or Wisconsin, right? Uh, Boston, yes. So there are these different accents that we, we can see that in our country very easily. And Peter had a Galilean accent. And so these, this other person is insisting, you know, that you're with him because you're a Galilean, just like Jesus, right, is a Galilean. Uh, Nazareth was in Galilee, and Capernaum was his focus of operation, sort of his base of operation. So three times now, we know that there was about an hour that passed between the second and the third. We don't know how much time, but uh, Luke says there was an interval of time between the first and the second denial. So, I mean, I think it's safe to say within a couple of hours, Peter has denied even knowing Jesus, even being associated with the disciples, or even being, he's, he's disassociating himself even from, from being a Galilean and, and, and being one of Jesus' Galilean followers. So he has gone about as completely as you can, okay? Now, he denies again, I don't know what you are talking about, you know? What are you talking about? And notice here, only Luke records, of the gospel writers, only Luke records this turning of Jesus and looking at Peter. And just imagine how Peter must have felt. Now, we don't know how this worked. We don't know if Jesus was perhaps on a balcony at, at this uh, high priest's house, at Caiaphas' house. We don't know if it was maybe through a window. In other words, Jesus is inside and Peter is outside in this courtyard and the fire has him illuminated. And of course, it's light inside and Jesus turns and looks at him. Or there's others who speculate that they were taking Jesus at this point from inside the uh, Caiaphas' house to the place where we're going to see they mock him. But we don't know how it happened or what, uh, Luke doesn't describe the exact setting and how it logistically worked. But Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And imagine the way Peter felt. And it was, again, Peter recalls what Jesus had said. In other words, he recalls that word of God that Jesus spoke to him. Uh, it, it says, he turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And here we see the start of Peter's repentance. He has hit his rock bottom here in denying Jesus three times. And uh, by the way, it's, it's back in uh, Luke 22, 32. I mean, it's only what, uh, 20 some verses before that Jesus had predicted this exactly uh, this would happen in, 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 in the midst of all Peter's confidence about himself. And um, remember, what, uh, remember what Jesus said also who, about whoever denies me before men, so also I will deny before my Father who is in heaven, or Luke has before the angels. So again, Peter is at a very low point here. But remember this, remember how Jesus also promised, we talked about this last week, when, when Jesus tells him he's going to deny him, he also then says, remember, after you have turned, strengthen the brethren. 
And we talked last week about that he, Jesus is actually predicting that Peter is going to repent, which he's starting to do right now, and that he is going to be restored. And when he is, strengthen the brothers, in other words, the other disciples. And so the starting of that process is right now. Peter has been convicted of his sin. Christ's own words, even before it happened, now being recalled by Peter, convict him of his sin. And just the look of Jesus at Peter convicts him of his sin, right? Uh, think of, uh, I'm sure this never happened to you because I'm sure you were always perfectly behaved when you were growing up, but isn't it the case sometimes that mom or dad just had to look at you? You didn't have to say a thing, just had to look at you, and it went, it was like a, a knife going through your heart, right? Didn't have to say a word, and that's the kind of look of disappointment, of, you know, how could you, but again, Jesus knew this was going to happen. So true repentance, we would say as Lutherans, has two parts, right? The first is the contrition, the sorrow over our sin. And we're seeing Peter engaged in that right now. Uh, and he weeps bitterly. And again, it's, a, it's an ongoing act. He's, he's uh, continuing to weep bitterly. But the second part, which is very important in true repentance, is also believing what? The forgiveness of the gospel, right? So true repentance, as Luther states it in his catechism, has those two parts. First, that we repent of our sin. We have the contrition for or sorrow for sin. But that's not the whole thing. Then true repentance also involves the receiving of absolution and believing that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. And so Peter has not gotten to that yet. And we're going to have, post-resurrection, we're going to have Jesus, in effect, restoring Peter uh, and commissioning him, asking him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So he will be restored, but right now, uh, he is in deep sorrow or contrition uh, over his sin. Okay? All right, so that's the end of that section. And as we did last week, uh, any questions or comments about this section? All right, let me go. I think... Pam was first. I'll come back to David. Hold on a second. No, it's all right. This is the way I get my exercise on Sunday morning. So this is either a question or observation. I okay, okay, sure. Peter was devastated, and he knew it from yes. the event, but he did not proclaim that he knew him at the fire. Yes. So why? I mean, that seems like that would be an obvious thing. You're still there with people who right. know okay. who you are, and you yes. denied it. Yeah. Why don't you say? Okay. Good question. Why would Peter deny the obvious that he's a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? Why would Peter not just say? Is that, that was a question, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And, and that's why the disciples scattered. And remember, on Easter evening, where are the disciples? And what, and what kind of, con, uh, what kind of a, a setting are they? They're, they're behind what? Locked doors for fear of the Jews, right? Um, again, they're thinking, he's arrested. What about us now? 
are, we, are they going to be coming for us next? And, it, you know, that was, that was probably a justifiable fear on their part. And, you know, the other thing when you stop and think about it, and we don't have this recorded, uh, but when you think about it, Peter seeing Jesus arrested, does he also start in his mind to think that Jesus predicted this, he also predicted what? He's going to be killed and rise again on the third day. They didn't seem to remember that last part too much, but is it starting to dawn on Peter that this is happening, the other is probably going to happen next as well. So yeah, there's a lot of fear and trepidation that, you know, again, I, I always say it's easy for us to sit here in our air-conditioned gym on our comfortable seats and talk about this. It's another thing, if you're out there at the fire and they're starting to accuse you of being one of them, okay? All right, I think David was next and then we'll get Bud. David? Thank you. Happy birthday, by the way. I would imagine uh, John was in close proximity to Peter's denials. Yes. I wonder what his reaction was. Yeah, great, great question. You wonder what went through John's mind at that point. And another thought I had about this along those same lines is why wasn't John getting accused? You know, why weren't people saying? Uh, and somehow, again, he held sway with the powers that be. So did he somehow get a pass? You know, because he's right there and he's known to the high priest. So why haven't they gone after John, so to speak? And again, the only possible explanation I, I can come up with, unless you can think of something else, is again, that family seems to have been influential. That if John was known to the high priest, his dad probably certainly was, Zebedee. And again, the, the, the chief priest scribes and the elders, especially the, Pharise especially the Sadducees, the chief priests, uh, were very, um, uh, they liked people with money, I'll put it that way. And they were, they were quite wealthy, many of them themselves. Exactly, exactly. So, but, but again, that's a, that's a great question. Okay, Bud, and then we'll get Mark. Yeah, along those same lines, the, the servant girl herself says, is this man also? So the servant mm -hmm. girl knew John was, yeah. was uh, also one of, them. one of Jesus' right. disciples. And why Peter now separates himself, not only from Jesus, but he kind of backs off from knowing John by yeah. implication. Yes, when he's asked about, you know, are you one of them, meaning the other disciples, as we said, he, he disassociates himself with the other disciples as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, who was, oh, Mark, that's right. Well, in regard to Peter, I, I, I would imagine that the incident with Malchus probably went viral. And mm. so uh, all of this commotion going on, mm -hmm. and, and he was probably highlighted. Uh, but another point is, and, and you were alluding to uh, the post-resurrection scene on the, mm -hmm. the shore where Jesus reinstates. I, first, I thought it might not be germane, but here at this point of denial, the two together are Peter and John. Mm -hmm. When we come to the end of John 21, and Jesus has this reinstatement of Peter, mm -hmm. and then Peter asks, what about him? Mm, yes. And he's referring to John. Yes. So 
it's, it's interesting that these two are together at those two moments, the moments of his denial right. as well as his restoration. Right, excellent point. And the other one that we don't hear about is James. Peter, James, and John were always sort of the inner circle of the disciples, but we do have just Peter and John reference. If, if again, if that reference in John is a reference to himself, that John is referring to himself, we, again, we think it is because he, he, was, he had that tendency to talk about himself in the third person. Um, the other thing I was going to add, Mark, is that um, you remember when the two men from the, uh, this is in, uh, well, it's going to be, we'll, we'll get to this eventually, uh, in Luke, the two men on the road to Emmaus, they come back after they, after they realize it was Jesus that they were walking with and when he sat down at table and blessed, and so, blessed the, the meal and so on, they come running back to the disciples, and the disciples say, yes, it's true, and he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, okay? We don't have an, uh, a, a description of that appearance. So we wonder again, what did Jesus, did he just appear to him, or was there dialogue back and forth? Did Jesus even at that point assure Peter of his um, absolution, or absolve him of what he had done we just don't know. It's in 1 Corinthians 15 also that Paul talks about he appeared to Cephas and so on. So uh, at any rate, we don't have that, but it's, it's kind of interesting. This is the low point uh, for Peter. Other either comments or questions? We always wish we knew more on these, on these things, right? All the ins and outs? Yes. All right, Mark. Yeah, good point. John is right there at the cross, and we know that because Jesus assigns to him the, uh, the responsibility of caring for his mother, Mary, and, and, uh, and vice versa. And uh, again, he seems to be there without any, any consequence to himself. And he's the only one that we know was there. Um, and then we do go on after that, that John, we believe, did do just that. He took Mary and... Uh, History outside the Bible uh, is that they settled in Ephesus, and uh, John cared for Mary uh, for her remaining earthly years here, uh, except for the interval when he is uh, exiled to Patmos, where he received revelation. Okay? Yeah, so it's interesting that these, uh, these things kind of interweave. Other, any other comments or questions? All right, let's go on then, and we're going to go now. Jesus, they take him, so he's excuse me, uh, coming now. Uh, oh, first we're going to mock, we're going to mock him. Uh, so starting at uh, chapter 23, then the whole company, so oh, let me read through the section and we'll go back. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped, I skipped the page. I'm sorry, 63. I'm sorry, skipped ahead. So now he's mocked. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, 
blaspheming him. So we go from where he was in, the, in Peter's denial. Now we kind of go behind the scenes. And as I said before, one of the theories is that they were bringing Jesus out to go to this wherever this mocking took place. And that's when he looked over and saw Peter and so on. But we don't know that for sure. But notice now the focus is off of Peter now and it's going to be back on Jesus now for the, rest, for the rest of the gospel. So the temple guard, the agents, they are the agents here of the chief priests and the scribes. So they answer to the chief priests and scribes. So if they're getting away with and maybe, and the, the speculation is that the chief priests and scribes knew that this was happening, that he was being mocked and beaten and did nothing to stop it. So you can just see the kind of contempt that even the religious leaders had for Jesus at that point. They're just thinking, fine, let them do it. Um, notice there, it's a repeated action again, the mocking and the beating. It's a repeated action. The, the, it's an imperfect uh, verb. It, it keeps happening again and again. And notice they blindfold him, and they keep on asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? I've often thought to myself, did Jesus know who was striking him? Of course. What if he would have said one of their names? That would have taken him aback, right? But he does not, of course. He does not make full use of his divine powers in his state of humiliation. But if he had said, John, Peter, you know, and it's called their name. Um, Notice there, they were blaspheming him. And blasphemy is insulting false teaching about God. So what is Luke concluding here about Jesus? That he really is the son of God. And by their actions, they are blaspheming Jesus. Right? And it's interesting, what charge are they eventually going to bring against Jesus? Blasphemy, that he's blaspheming. But Luke makes very clear who's doing the blaspheming here. It is, it is them, at this point, it is the, those guards. So it's, it's insulting, it's false teaching, um, and there's great irony here. Uh, that they're going to charge Jesus with blasphemy when, in fact, they've got the Son of God in front of them and they're treating him that way. Okay? Now, uh, let's stop there. Any comments or questions? All right. Now, filling in a gap, again, in Luke. Um, we know that the chief priests, scribes, and elders met late on Thursday night and had what is actually an illegal session. Illegal because it happened at night. The Sanhedrin only was to meet during the day. They had concluded at this night session that they were going to kill Jesus. But they have to meet in the day to make it official, to make it a legal uh, meeting. I was trying to think of anything we have today that compares to that, but they, they were so carried away when they finally got him on Monday, Thursday evening, that even though it's dark, they go ahead and meet and conclude that they're going to kill him. So now, Luke lets us know, and let's read through this section, uh, starting at verse 66. When day came, 
the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Great irony at the last portion there. We'll get to that. So notice now, when day came. So it is very, very early when dawn uh, happens, right? And uh, now they're going to, they probably had Jesus. They were holding him somewhere um, in, in some uh, probably cell or place they detained prisoners. That's where they were beating and mocking him. Now when day comes, first of daylight, it should be now on the starting uh, Friday morning, for, for the way we think of time. The assembly of the elders. So again, this is the Jewish council. It's the highest. The Sanhedrin was sort of a combination of a legislature and a judicial, uh, kind of two branches in one. Um, and they get together again now. And again, this is going to make it official. And both the chief priests and the scribes. Chief priests would have been Sadducees. They were the ones concerned with all the running the temple and the sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system. The scribes were Pharisees, were lay people, they weren't clergy, and they seemed to be more concerned with the word of God and living according to the word of God. So these two parties are together and um, uh, meeting together, and they took Jesus to their council. When we believe Luke uses that word council, he's referring to the chamber where they met, took him to that place, and they were all there. So... They say, if you are the Christ, well, here's the first time we hear them speaking a, a messianic title concerning Christ. If you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, okay? So if you are, right, um, uh, tell us, so let us know, but Jesus, just he's, he's done this before. Remember when he doesn't give them a straight answer. He doesn't say, yes, I am. But we would say he has already demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is. And they still don't believe. So he tells them, if I tell you, you will not believe. So he's kind of admitting, what, what's the use of my telling you? You're not going to believe even if I tell you, right? And he says, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Remember when, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, and remember the question they, he wanted them to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? In the same way, Jesus did not answer with, yes, I am the one who is to come, don't look for another. Remember what he did. He answered by pointing to all the prophecies about the coming Messiah, right? that the deaf hear, the lame walk, and so on, and the good news is preached to the poor. Go on, go on back and tell John what you see. And he names you know, all those messianic signs, all those predictions about what the Messiah is going to do. And in the same way here, he doesn't give a straight 
yes answer, I am, but he has demonstrated clearly to them that he, in fact, is the Messiah. He has done all the works that the Messiah was to do when he came. He has fulfilled all of the prophecies. And he says there that if I tell you, you will not believe it, right? He's not going to change their minds. There's no question. They've got their minds made up. You ever know people like that? Got their mind made up. Don't confuse me with the facts, right? And so then he's, he goes into talking. Uh, son of man is his favorite self-reference. Um, uh, 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 he uses it the most in the Gospels of any other term referring to himself. Son of man. He says, uh, when the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now we think he's probably referring here to what? His eventual exaltation to the right hand of God, which we would say is going to happen post-resurrection when uh, he ascends and is seated at the right hand of God, as we confess in the Creed, the place of power and prominence and authority in all of creation. And he's referring to himself. You know, uh, so he's saying, he goes way beyond their question here and refers to himself as the one who is going to be exalted at the right hand of the power of God. You can think of Philippians 2 here, it kind of rings in your ear, right? Uh, Therefore God highly exalted him that the, and play, uh, gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and below the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's exactly what he's referencing here. That's going to come. That's going to happen. Okay? So now they're really upset. So they all said, are you the son of God now? So they're going a little bit deeper. Are you the son of God? And look at this answer. He says to them, you say that I am am. Now remember we talked about this a little bit last week and we talked about it before. I am is, we believe, and, and uh, reading the uh, uh, commentary, Concordia commentary, really stressed this a lot, that the I am, of course, comes from Exodus chapter 3 and it is the Hebrew Elohim equivalent, I am who I am. When God calls Moses out of the burning bush, which is not consumed, and tells Moses to go to the people, and he's got, he's got this mission for him, and Moses comes back with a question. You know, Moses is trying everything he can to dodge the, the uh, mission. And he says, when I go to the people and say that uh, God sent me, who, and they say, what is his name? What should I say? God says, Elohim. Tell them, Elohim has sent you. I am who I am has sent you. Now, just look at this. Jesus throws it back at them and says, you have said that, I am. <laughs> they have not, they, that's a confession they do not want to make. But Jesus throws it back at them. And they, they seem to take it that way, don't they? They say, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. There's a great irony there, isn't it? What further testimony do we need? Exactly, we would say. What further testimony do you need, and yet you still don't believe? There's a great irony there. 
And so this is it. This is the last straw. They uh, feel he is claiming to be God and the Messiah, and that's it. And they already concluded this the night before. So this is sort of the re rehashing of the same thing. And they're going to get him, this, in their eyes, this carpenter's son from, uh, from Nazareth uh, is claiming that he is the son of God, that he is I am. Well, that's enough of that. You know, we're going to be done with this in short order. Now, uh, we'll stop for just a moment. The only problem is they cannot, at least scholars believe at this time, the Sanhedrin cannot uh, um, go through with capital punishment. They cannot uh, inflict capital punishment, actually carry it out, implement capital punishment. They've got to get the Romans to do that. Only the Romans had the power to execute via crucifixion. So they're going to go to Pilate here, and that's where I jumped ahead to. We'll go to there in a second. So we'll go into 23. But let me ask first, are there any uh, either questions or comments on this whole encounter that they have in the morning now with the Sanhedrin? Okay, bud. It's interesting that um, uh, Stephen uh, yes. also testified, I see the Son of Man at the right hand of God, and that is what caused them then to stone, stone him. him. Exactly. And so that's you see a lot of, if you ever in Acts 7, read the stoning of Stephen, and you will see a lot of comparisons to the crucifixion of Christ. Praying for them, the right hand of God, as you said, there are a lot of parallels, you might say, and how they went ahead and did that on their own has always been a question as well. You get the feeling that this was, you know, something that they were just so enraged they didn't even bother with what they were supposed to do or not. Okay, I think Randy was next, and then I think we'll get Ruth and then Mark. When they say from now on, from now on you will see me seated at the right hand of God, could it, he been referring to this afternoon when he sees the thief on the cross? Yeah, the, uh, there, the other theory, and it could be both and, is speaking about his resurrection and his being glorified or raised as well. Um, but a lot of scholars, because of that right hand of God, seem to take it to be you know, his, his ascension, where he is, that's the ultimate fulfillment, but resurrection certainly could be a part of it as well. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the thief on the cross member, today you'll be with me, with me in paradise. Right. Okay, Ruth? I thought it was interesting that he starts out with son of man. Right. His human nature, and they complete the witness and yes. say son of God. Son of God. have the whole witness of yes. who he is. And um, uh, usually in Luke, we sort of combine all those titles together. It's not quite as cut and dried as it is in Matthew, for example, but all three of them are referring to the same thing, to the Messiah, to the anointed one. So Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, although we usually say Son of Man, emphasizes more the humanity, the human nature, Son of God, the divine nature, of course. Christ, the Messiah, or the anointed one, going back to Isaiah and the servant songs, I, my son whom I've anointed, you know, so on. So, yes, that's very good. Mark? I often like to see who is off camera in some of these uh, scenes. And uh, I'm wondering, in this case, in this council, Joseph of Arimathea was yeah, yeah. because Luke in the next chapter parenthetically identifies him right. as one 
Right. And Nicodemus. Time. Was Nicodemus around somewhere? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. We're going to, in just a few verses, when they go to Pilate, we're going to pick up the crowd also. The first time we see the crowd now coming. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. John? You, you sort of answered this, but I guess they didn't have the authority to stone him. Did they not want to stone him? Did they want to crucify him? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Apparently, they, and they're going to be very specific later on, crucify him. Um, so you wonder, uh, Jesus has predicted that he's going to be crucified. And, but you wonder, could they have done away with him quietly in the Garden of Gethsemane, stoned him there? But again, it was not God's plan that it happened that way. That's, I don't have a better answer than that. But you, you see what happens in Acts 7. They're so enraged that they just stone him. And that's the first time we see Saul, of course. They were checking their coats. He was the coat check guy at uh, Stephen's stoning. So it's the first time we see him. Oh, I'm sorry, Ruth. I'm wondering uh, the fact that they allowed him to be mocked and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they just did everything they could to shame him. Yes. And the death by crucifixion was, mm -hmm. was the most shameful. Yes. And that was their way of cutting this movement off. Nipping yeah, that's it a in good the point. butt by right. shaming the leader. Right. I think that was that was part of their plan mm -hmm. to shame him in in public as much as possible. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And make a public example of him, which crucifixion was. I think I mentioned this last week that, you know, they would do this usually in pretty uh, near busy thoroughfares, and they would put the charge up uh, over the top of the cross, uh, King of the Jews in this case. And uh, remember the the chief priests and scribes would get all upset. Don't put king of the Jews, put he said he was the king of the Jews, but Pilate, what I have written, I have written, and he didn't change it. But um, yeah, so publicly shaming someone like that would happen with crucifixion. If they quietly did away with him, uh, they wouldn't have that shame factor, so to speak, on their side. Okay? Now, um, you know, Jesus has, has predicted that all this would happen. We won't look at it, but in Luke uh, 18, uh, he says concerning himself in verses 32 and 33, for he, Jesus, will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So Jesus predicted even the shameful way he's going to be treated in advance, okay? Four chapters earlier. All right, let's quickly get to Pilate. We'll have to leave him with Pilate and not go to Herod, I guess. So chapter 23, let me read this first section. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. <laughs> and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. These guys are pretty smooth operators, aren't they? So first of all, Pilate, uh, he ruled from 26 to 36 AD. He was the Roman governor 
of Judea. Judea was the uh, place, uh, the, the territory where Jerusalem uh, was uh, situated. So he was the lucky one who got to uh, govern these people uh, from the Roman standpoint. Uh, we don't know a lot about him. Uh, when you think about it, we say his name every single Sunday here, don't we? In every one of our services. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. And as I said, we don't know a lot about him. Uh, we know it seems that he was pretty, a pretty brutal uh, ruler. Uh, we won't get to it today, but we think possibly one of the reasons that Pilate and Herod uh, were sort of enemies, didn't like each other very much, is that Jesus is asked one time about the time that Pilate mixed the blood of God's people with the sacrifices, mingled the blood of the people with the sacrifices. So putting two, and two together, there was some kind of execution that Pilate carried out during the time of sacrifice, which would have been horrific to think of. And we don't know, and the Galileans were the ones whose blood was mingled, and that's Herod's territory. Is that the reason that these two didn't get along? We do know that Pilate was recalled uh, in 36 AD by the emperor himself, by Tiberius Caesar, and it was a, a result of the way he uh, brutally put down an um, uh, uprising by the Samaritans, and Tiberius recalled him to Rome, and that's, that's not a call you want to get. But on the way to Rome, Tiberius dies. And from that point on, we don't hear about Pilate again. And the tradition has it that he just uh, quietly went away and, and retired. So, uh, and I will just tell you this, the Ethiopian church, because Pilate is so uh, sympathetic toward Jesus... In fact, we get it here, I find no guilt in this man. He's going to say the same thing three times in the encounters that he has with Jesus to the crowds. I find no guilt in The Ethiopian church has made him a, um, uh, the, the, they feel he is, that he eventually converted. This is outside the Bible. We have no biblical reference to this whatsoever. But the Ethiopian church believes that Pilate did convert, and they actually have a day on the church calendar for him. It's uh, June 18, I believe it is, and they believe he died as a Christian martyr. Now, we again, we have no uh, backing for this whatsoever, but I just wanted you to know that, that um, he is seen as a, a cult figure almost uh, amongst the Ethiopian Christians. So, but anyway, um, back to what's happening here. Um, what's, what's the charge? that the uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders come to Pilate with concerning Jesus, that they hope is going to get his ear. He's, he's what? First of all, he's misleading our nation, so it's kind of subversive activity, right? Uh, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Is that true? Caesar was never, has never mentioned in any of the uh, back and forth with the chief priests, scribes, and elders so they're hoping, what, Pilate's going to see him as sort of a, a rabble-rouser, troublemaker, right? He's, he doesn't let us pay taxes. Now remember, when they bought, brought Jesus the coin and they tried to trick him, is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? And remember what, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He said, let's see the coin. Whose picture's on it? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So that's, that's a lie as well, right? 
Now, the last one, saying he is himself Christ, or the anointed one, the Messiah, a king. Now, that's the one that Pilate kind of gloms onto here. Because who is supposed to be the king that you, yeah, Caesar. So is he a treasonist? Is he practicing treason here? We're not supposed to pay taxes to Caesar and I'm a king? Okay. And Jesus again, uh, he gets asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, you have said so. He's not denying that he is. You have said so. And again, taking it as a positive. Um, and notice Pilate there, I find no guilt in this man. And again, he's going to say that three times. Then, when they say he stirs up all the people, uh, so he's sort of an insurrectionist, a subversive. And notice there, they give Pilate a way out here. At least he, he hopes it's a way out. He says that he's stirring up the people from Galilee to this place. And you can just see the light bulb go off with Pilate, right? So Pilate asks then, is he a Galilean? And when he hears, yes, he is, oh, okay. Well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod would have been in town also uh, because so many of his uh, citizens, countrymen, would have been in, in Jerusalem for the Passover. Yeah.